Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Marmalin Hill Property. You're with John Pigeon. I'm solo today. I have a very special guest. She is the head of residential research at CoreLogic. We've had her on the show numerous times. Eliza Owen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. I can't wait for this episode because on the back of yesterday's news, another dirty old rate rise. And we want to unpack that first and foremost and then go into what we call or what you guys call call the housing value index at CoreLogic. Uh, we've got some listener questions. We've got a heap of stuff to go through. So without further ado, let's get into it. So what was your thoughts? The Treasurer of Australia, Jim Chalmers and Philip Lowe, RBA governor, got together and said, let's put the rates up just one more time. Um, it's been a hefty 12 months for, for mortgage holders, hasn't it? What was your impressions? Did you see it coming? To be honest, I, I think I was in analysis paralysis by that point. I couldn't really pick it either way. It was, to me, a pretty lineball decision because this whole piece of putting up the cash rate is about bringing down inflation through a slowdown in economic activity. So, on the one hand, we have actually seen some data through May that suggested economic activity was slowing. Retail sales were flat in April. The unemployment rate finally started to tick up through May. So, that came through at 3.7% as opposed to 3.5% where it had been trending the past few months. But then we saw some figures that suggested maybe an upside risk to inflation. So, the monthly CPI indicator, which is a recent output by the ABS, that showed a bit of an acceleration in annual inflation to 6.8%. And then you had the Fair Work Commission where they make an annual decision around award and minimum wages. So they've increased award wages by 5.75%, which was a little higher than markets were expecting. And so that's why I think towards the very end of May, there was this kind of turn in sentiment that, oh, actually, maybe we are going to see another rate rise. And to be honest, there could be another one still to come before we get to the peak. So depending on where you sit in, in all of this and, and when you bought and what your mortgage levels are and how much you're saving and how much buffers you've got in your life, it affects everyone in so many different ways, doesn't it? It's very hard to get this thing right. But I, I suppose the main question that I have is, does the government have or, or does the RBA have a different lever to pull other than just simply increasing interest rates? It just seems that inflation is high. We get that and we need to bring it down to its ideal level of say 2 to 3% and it's hovering just in the sixes. We need to get that down. But it seems as though the only thing they're doing is just pushing up the interest rate. Yeah. And 
The only other major tool that the RBA governor, Phil Lowe, has kept referring to, and to his credit, he has been talking about this for many years, is productivity growth. Another way to ease inflation is basically reducing the cost of production of, you know, a unit of of goods or services. And you do that through investing in things that enhance productivity, whether it's investing in machinery or training practices or or whatever to unleash some of the blockages that, that we've seen in production that have been behind more inflationary conditions over the past few years. Unfortunately, the opposite of that is kind of happening. We've actually seen a reduction in productivity since 2019 across Australia. And that is probably something that more sits with the government and individual firms and, and a bit more of the private sector than the RBA, which Really, the RBA is just working with monetary policy and, and interest rates. So what I'm hearing is that that type of like productivity growth, that, that doesn't happen overnight, does it? It, it happens over a period of time, whereas the, the interest rates, that can have a really immediate effect on households and, and people's hip pockets. Like, and Unless you're a, a retiree or someone that's got no mortgage and is, is unencumbered and just has a, a bucket load of cash to go and put in a term deposit, everyone else is affected here, aren't they? Yeah, especially recent home buyers. You can see why there's been such negative sentiment towards Phil Lowe when they were giving this kind of forward guidance. To their credit, they said, assuming X, Y, Z, they foresee the interest rate staying low until 2024. But I think that did give people a lot of confidence and exuberance yes. and in the market. And so people who bought when fixed rates were at a floor, property prices were at a record high, you know, that is going to be creating some real pain for recent buyers. Mm, absolutely. And we'll, we'll talk to that in a moment. But I suppose if we go back, say, 12 to 18 months, interest rates around 2%, and, and some people still have 2% interest rates, which is quite scary. And, and I did a video this morning outlining that, yeah, we've had 12 or so interest rate rises. And, and there's been these little subtle hits to the mouth almost each month. It's like, okay, we've got to adjust a little bit again. We've got to continue to adjust. But this whole coming off fixed rates to variable and, and going from two to six is a total whack in the face, isn't it? And hopefully we're prepared for that. Otherwise, that can have a disastrous effect on housing. And uh, you released a, a press release yesterday. I want to call it a press release. It's big news. So we'll put that in the show notes. But your heading or your headline was steamed to come out of the housing market recovery as RBA rate hiking cycle rolls on. Can you dig a little bit deeper into that headline for us? Yeah, for sure. So historically, I would say that movements in the cash rate have what we call this negative correlation with movements in home values. So that basically means that when the cash rate is rising, we would expect property prices to come down. That's basically because you have your borrowing uh, capacity limited, but it's also just demand for credit, right? If we think about the supply and demand of goods, if you increase the cost of money, which is what we're doing by seeing higher interest rates, you reduce demand for money, you reduce demand for credit. People don't see it as great time to borrow and buy. So that's where housing would usually come off the boil. This cycle has been a little bit different in the sense that property prices did continue to go up and actually accelerated 1.2% through May 
even though we got another 25 basis point increase. So I guess what I'm thinking is that we would probably be more likely to see a slowdown in the rate of growth this month than what we saw in May. Maybe not price falls. The supply demand dynamics are still really I guess, out of whack compared to where we've seen them historically, given that you've got such low levels of of properties coming to market, you've got the additional reduction in supply in the construction sector and all the constraints there. And then you've got this period of extraordinarily unique demand from a surge in net overseas migration, estimated to be 400,000 this financial year, where usually net overseas migration is about 250,000 a year. Which you would argue is on the back of nothing happening through COVID, yeah? Yes, it's a little bit of catch up through COVID, but there have been some structural changes in Australia as well. The government allowed some people on certain visa types to stay here a bit longer. So as well as people returning, we've also seen less people leaving Mm. than we might normally see as well. Basically, we've got a country that's too attractive to live in, haven't we? I think so, yeah. I I mean, there is another demand trend there, which is a reduction in average household size, people really spreading out across the property market, which has contributed to a lot of additional demand as well. So let's touch upon that supply-demand issue. Like my view and my, I suppose, uneducated opinion is the government needs to be doing more to provide more housing uh, because of the international migration you mentioned and people living longer and, and generally we're just going backwards in terms of how many dwellings are being built for the amount of people that we need to to house. So putting up interest rates is not helping that cause. My black and white approach to it is, okay, who are the people that are building houses? They're developers and and builders and and landowners, right? They're not going to want to bring stock out of the ground when now they're paying 6% for uh, lending as opposed to 2%. Um, It's not as simple as that, but development approvals surely are going to decrease further as interest rates rise. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that is exactly what we've seen in the month of April, there was an 8% drop-off in new dwelling approvals, and they actually came down to their lowest level since 2012. Mm, now, that's yeah. a reflection of, as you say, developers maybe not being as incentivized to, to put out new stock when interest rates are high, prices are low. There's also some elements like finance requiring pre-sales of apartments. And if you have less property selling in a high interest rate environment, that becomes a factor as well and takes out a lot of the higher density project approvals. So the two most common people that, or uh, I suppose categories that buy property are, I think, upsizers and first home buyers and then investors. If you put those three into categories and think about that for a moment, investors aren't necessarily going to want to invest because the yields aren't there. First home buyers aren't saving at the rate that they could because property prices are rising and upsizers are not going to upsize because of the extra mortgage that they will now take on. Is that, uh, is that fair? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And look, indirectly, this is kind of the point because if we're taking pressure out of housing demand, then, you know, theoretically, you would expect property prices to ease off a little bit. And in the construction sector, when we talk about the reduction in in new dwellings being approved, that is then hypothetically freeing up capacity in the building sector, which will bring down the cost of builds as well. 
even if established home prices continue to rise, established home prices aren't factored into inflation. New dwellings are. So, indirectly, I think this might actually help to bring down inflation in some way. It's just that there's, yeah, been a really unique supply-demand dynamic, so maybe isn't quite having the desired effect just yet. Mm, okay, interesting. Simon Hall asked a question in our My Milano Facebook group. Thanks for sending that through, Simon, and there's a few others we want to get through. Looking at the vacancy rates versus median rents versus average income for all major capitals. Now, at CoreLogic, you look at capital cities, you look at major regionals, you combine them all together to produce data as well. What sort of correlation do you see and, and do you focus on those three versus each other, vacancy rates, median rents and average income? I think they're all related and they all are telling the same story. So there would be a negative correlation between vacancy rates and rents growth. As vacancy rates go down, rent prices go up. And that's exactly what we've seen through this period. Rental supply has been in pretty much free fall for the past three years. So you've had vacancy rates tracking at about 1%. Meanwhile, rent growth has been double digits. Uh, I think it's it's just fallen below double digits as of May, and national growth in rent values of uh, 9.9% in the past 12 months. In terms of income, that's a little bit trickier because incomes are able to be stretched a little more to service rents because historically, Renting has been relatively affordable in Australia. So what we're seeing at the moment is more average income being dedicated to rents, which has seen property prices go up as well. And the question asker may be asking for this reason as well, but recent growth in incomes has enabled rents to go up as well. So yeah, that's all sort of playing into it. It's quite a, the incomes going up, is great, and that's sort of been lagging in the last few years, hasn't it? But uh, but now that's basically being absorbed by the the increase in rental costs and the and the cost of living. So from a saving point of view, if you're out there listening to this and saying, "Well, yeah, that's great," but I'm actually not saving anymore as a result of my income going up. In actual fact, I and I saw an article in the Fin Review today where quite a prominent worker in the building industry was going out and getting a second job just to basically cover the mortgage now, albeit he had an investment property to cover as well, but he's, as a result of cost of living, that was happening, which uh, probably um, it's drastic times, drastic measures. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that people would take up a second job before considering selling off their investment property, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, well, and and this is um, something that we we probably won't have time to unpack today, but uh, people bought investment properties maybe 12, 18 months ago when money was very cheap and uh, the yields looked pretty solid. Now, all of a sudden, the the net yield on someone's investment looks like a very different story today. And and the last thing we want to be doing is selling an investment property after 12 months of owning it. However, if we've got our mortgage and our roof over our head and an investment property, which one's the first one to go? Obviously, it's going to be that investment property. And in in uh, maybe higher vacant areas, that's where we see that um, 
that mortgage stress and those those bargains, those distressed properties coming onto the market. Do you think we'll we'll be starting to see some of that in the next sort of 12 to 18 months? Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I mean, I think we'd be naive not to expect that more people are going to fall behind on their mortgage payments and some people may have to force that difficult decision. There's a lot that happens before you get to that point. And even the banking sector has talked about, you know, maybe helping some of their customers, proactively getting them on interest-only loans for a period period of time. In terms of the actual portion of mortgages in arrears, it's still very low. We had March quarter data out yesterday from the banking regulator APRA, which showed that 0.7% of outstanding housing credit was in arrears. So 0.7% is lower than where it was at the onset of the pandemic. Yeah. So those, I I wrote some numbers down and and I think it was from you guys, distressed actual actual number of properties. The average is around 15,000 before COVID-19 at any one time. At the minute, the distress level was 5,500. Does that seem right? I don't know about those particular numbers, but it kind of sounds right because mm. when I talk about 0.7% of outstanding credit, I'm talking about the value, not the number of properties. Sure. I, I don't actually know the number of properties, but mm. um, yeah, it seems like it's less than what it was at the onset of COVID. And to be fair, at the onset of COVID, a lot of people would have had job loss and you know, literally wouldn't have had a way to service their mortgage initially before all the government support. So that kind of makes sense to me. I think it will rise over the next year, but rising off of relatively low levels. Yeah, okay. And as you said, the banks are trying to do everything in their powers to allow people to hold on to their mortgage payment plans, et cetera. And in the distressed space, I believe there's like a four to six month journey that you go on with the banks before they say, look, we're starting to pull the pin here. You need to basically forego that property, which is disastrous for people. But understanding that there is a time frame to go through. And if you're in that situation or you feel as though you're concerned about that, please reach out to us and, and have that conversation because sometimes there there is other options than just saying, look, I'm putting my house on the market. I've, I've had enough. It's stressing me out too much. We're going to take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about the home value index and answer a few more questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So we've covered a bit of territory here in, res- in uh, respect to the, I suppose, the now and how we're dealing with the now and how it's changed dramatically in the last 12 to 18 months, Eliza. But what I wanted to explore in more detail is CoreLogic's Home Value Index. And you refer to a lot of that in your data and your press releases and, and everything else. Can you please explain to our listeners what that is and, and why it's so important to you guys? Yeah, so the Home Value Index is a really comprehensive measure of changes in value in Australian housing stock. The index itself can be thought of as uh, like a stock market index or, you know, the number itself is arbitrary, but it represents the change in value in Australia's housing market over time. So we do nationally generate the index on a daily basis. The way that we do that is we impute a value for every property that we possibly can in the Australian housing market. So that that idea of imputation, it's basically using the sales listings and property attribute information that we have at hand to predict what the property is worth today. So we look at the change in that compared to what it was yesterday, and then we adjust that index number accordingly. We like it because as opposed to a median sale price or even a change in a median valuation, you're capturing the dynamic across the entire market. So you can encompass what's happening at the high end and the low end and and every kind of property is bundled in there. And the home value index is produced from Australia wide all the way down to the suburb level because we're basing it off individual property valuations and and building up the geographies from there. Talk to me about the the number of properties around the country. And I I don't know if you have a number there specifically, but what what would you, like every property in Australia is quite astounding to know that there's so many small regional locations. There's obviously major cities with apartments and units and townhouses and houses. Like, have you got a number of that and how many are we capturing there? Do you, do you get a feel that it it is actually like 95% of Australia's total houses and units and apartments? So there would be 11 million properties thereabouts wow. in, um, that, in Australia, sorry. Our coverage would be less than that because we're only factoring in valuations that we're confident in. That helps us to kind of maintain a more accurate reading of trends in the market. Sure. So when you say valuations, does your uh, data, and I want really, I'm interested in this and I hope our listeners are to some extent as well, but uh, does your (laughs) data rely on bank valuation or someone going in and physically getting a valuation for that property or how does it extract the valuation information? When you go in and when you've got a CoreLogic subscription, you click on an address anywhere around the country and a valuation pops up and it gives us a low, medium, high confidence rating. Mm. Um, Does that correlate with what you're talking about here? Yeah, so we are generating that valuation. It's called an automated valuation model or AVM and we are basically using a model that's trained to take the most predictive attributes around a property and to come up with a value based on that. Now, we have, I believe it's about 80% of those valuations are 
within plus or minus 10% on the sale price. So there is a fair amount of accuracy there, but we will give a score because if we have, say, limited surrounding sales information, then we may not be able to impute as as accurate evaluation. Got it. And yeah, that, that's why we provide that confidence score as well. But usually the attributes that are, that are most predictive are things like recent surrounding sales. And we're also looking at on the property, bedroom, bathroom, land size. And again, it's not just taking a sale price and assuming that the next property is going to sell for the same thing. It's saying, well, what is it about this property that's different that kind of mediates what, what it would end up selling for as well? Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. And, and I think that leads to my next question of when you go on to say a realestate.com or domain, you might have a median house price for a certain suburb and say, oh, okay, I can afford that. But when you go in there, there might be there might be units, there might be houses, there might be ones on busy roads, there might be ones that are waterfront and the median is really taking the middle price of all of those combined together, um, specifically to houses or specifically to units, but essentially taking the middle. Is there any data that is out there where we can actually take the mean so we're grabbing it all and, and taking the average from that? So I think where the distinction is important is not so much whether it's median or mean, because I would usually defer to median because median is cutting off the more volatile pieces that, that you might be averaging, right? If, if you've got a stellar waterfront mansion yep. or whatever. At both ends. Yeah. So I think the difference that's important is having a median of all of those imputed valuations rather than a median of what is happening to sell at the time. Mm. If you think about, say, we take like the Sydney housing market and the government's just introduced a uh, first home buyer incentive. If you're only looking at the median of what is selling at the time, maybe your median is being skewed a bit lower because lower value properties are having to sell. If you're taking a median of all of the imputed valuations, then you're still tracking how, I guess, how that whole market is looking and and you're getting a a better sense of where the middle sits within the whole market rather than just what is selling at the time. Yeah, sure. It's it's interesting and it's all interpretive, isn't it? But I I think one thing for, for listeners, if you're looking at maybe, if you're concerned about your area where you've got your mortgage, whether it be an investment or owner rock, one piece of data that we're concentrating on of late is definitely the owner occupier owned outright percentage, um, which obviously usually you need to go and find from the Australian Bureau of Statistics or CoreLogic would definitely have that. But that gives a level of stability, doesn't it, to, to know that, well, if, if 35% of the whole suburb owns their house outright, unencumbered, there's no debt, in the event of an interest rate rise, 35% of the whole suburbs basically not affected, get on with your life. Yeah, that's a really good point. I was looking at this this morning actually for um, regional New South Wales and the Mid-North Coast where you have a lot of retirees only 24% of households that are owner-occupier have a have a mortgage against them, which wow. is relatively low. Wow. So, yeah, it does give you an, an indication, I guess, of what areas might be more 
more at risk mm. versus who's getting through the current period more comfortably, especially if you're a retiree and you're living off interest income. Yeah. You're doing very well. <laughs> Absolutely, you are at the moment. Yeah, for sure. The last few years have been a bit rocky. But uh, another question, and we can't go through an episode without auction clearance rates. So Christy says, I'd be keen to understand if there's a correlation between interest rate rises and buyer activity, e.g. auction clearance rates. And, and I've like coming from the country, I'm like, what is this whole auction clearance rate stuff? Because I never see auctions where I grew up and, and, and a lot of regional locations don't hardly run auctions at all. And I know even the smaller capital cities don't have too many auctions at all. There might be one in Hobart on a weekend. So talk to us about that correlation, but also how important auction clearance are, rates are as a guide. Yeah, auction clearance rates have a very strong correlation with changes in property values. So interest rates have a relationship with the clearance rate in the same way that higher interest rates mean lower property prices, lower buying and selling activity, lower auction clearance rates. So anything that's an indicator of market performance will generally have an inverse relationship with the cash rate movement. As I mentioned before, it's been a little bit different through this cycle because of the supply demand pieces. The auction clearance rate itself is a very powerful indicator of what's happening in the combined capital cities index, but it's probably most useful in understanding movements in Sydney and Melbourne's auction market, where they would have between 30 and up to 40% in a hot market of Melbourne properties would, would have an auction campaign attached to them. Right. So that's, say we go to the height of that, that's 40%. Mm-hmm. There's there's 60% of the total property market is, is not going through an auction process. Uh, where are we getting data for that? And is that coming, flowing through in the median house price up, uh, adjusted monthly? Yeah. So remember, we're doing a daily valuation of the property market. Yep. So any information that's flowing through, you have different lags on different data sets for you know, particular states and territories. But the auction piece does help us to get a higher frequency view of the market for sure. Yeah, cool. No, that's definitely a great starting point. So the home value index I, I quite like and, and you've mentioned there in the press release that it rose 1.2% nationally in, in May, I believe. What does that mean? Like 1.2%, is that high, low or, or, or uh, in the middle somewhere? That's high. Historically, if you're looking at upswings in Australia's property market, the monthly movement has averaged 0.5%. So a 1.2% jump in the month is high. Historically, it's high compared to recent movements. April, March and April were about half a percent up. So it was quite surprising to see that not only have we seen a third consecutive month of growth, Mm. but the rate of growth actually increased. I don't know that we're going to get the same results in June just because we've now had two successive rate rises. I think that'll, as I mentioned, take a bit of steam out of the growth rate. But to be honest, the whole housing market cycle since the onset of the pandemic has been quite volatile, high highs, low lows. It's been a pretty extreme time for both the home value index, but also a lot of economic indicators that have been tracked through COVID. 
Yeah. And in your time, and, and we're starting to sort of round this out, but in your time in, in research, are you surprised in general as to what property's done, property values have done since COVID? Yes. I think like a lot of analysts, it made sense to me that property prices would drop off because unemployment was surging. But what I think a lot of analysts and, and myself really didn't see coming was the institutional responses, the mortgage repayment holidays from the banks, 0.1% cash rate, a record fiscal stimulus package, to the point where these things were later referred to as over-insurance of the economy and by extension, the housing market. That's really supported us through. And now we've gotten to you know, some of these other extremes in migration, inflation, very tight labour market, which has helped to support the property market still. But yes, the property market resilience has, uh, it has been quite surprising. Mm, absolutely. And, and even to the point now, like from a buyer's agent point of view, we're, we're still getting a, a good number of inquiries coming through with people wanting to buy and transact. So they're, they're also resilient in their own mind to say, well, yeah, I can just rely on property property for the long term because it, it's, it hasn't missed a beat essentially with, uh, with one of the biggest slowdowns in the economy has seen in the last 20 years, arguably. Yeah, I mean, it feels like things are normalising now, right? Obviously, when interest rates were at 0.1%, you had this boom in 2021 in particular, where there were 620,000 home sales over the year. As interest rates have risen, property prices went through a decline. That slowed to about 460,000 sales over the past 12 months. But that's probably more in line with what we would normally see across Australia's housing market. Mm. Okay. So final piece of advice for our listeners, where are we putting our hard-earned cash? Where are we buying? What, What are the trends? What are you seeing out there? The broader trend would be a strong net overseas migration figure. And if you look at historic migration flows, around 33% of overseas arrivals go to Melbourne, the southeast, the inner and west suburbs. So, you know, Melbourne pretty well underperformed through the pandemic period. It hasn't seen the same kind of price growth as other cities. So maybe there's a a chance that it would uh, have better performance through the next housing cycle. Of course, these things also depend a lot on your strategy. Are you looking for capital growth? Are you looking for positive cash flow? So in terms of stronger yields, potentially cheap housing markets, and while you should be wary of mining markets, some of the highest yielding markets that we're looking at at the moment, Moranbar. Yep, so Moranbar in Queensland. Yep. And uh, Dysart houses in particular have relatively strong yields, low mm. medium values. And then another market, if you're looking maybe for something other than a, than a mining investment town, Lock Sport Houses in regional Victoria, annual rent yield of 6%. So it's not crazy high, but it's got a very tight rental market as well. We've right. only seen three rental listings in that market over the past 12 months. Okay. So Lock Sport, 
I believe I'm only looking at data. So it's in yeah, the yeah. Latrobe Gippsland region, ah, okay. um, yeah. a coastal town, um, popular holiday destination, water sports, things like that. Sure. So yeah, but you hit the nail on the head uh, in respect to strategy, didn't you? It's like okay, you can go and buy wherever you want, but if it doesn't relate to your strategy, then forget it. You're going to blow up and burst with uh, with either lack of cash flow or or, uh, or something that goes amiss because it didn't align with what you wanted in your goals and outcomes. That's ultra important. But yeah, some great data and and great um, conversation around just what goes into the research. I'm really intrigued and always am intrigued to talk to you, Eliza, in respect to to what you do to bring this sort of data to people like ourselves. Um, And hopefully for our listeners today, we did go into a bit of detail. So it was more uh, around if we're an investor out there that wants to do some research, what indicators are we looking at? And it's really important to educate yourself on that stuff before you go and jump in and buy that next property. But for first home buyers, if you're wanting to get into that market, keep working through that savings plan and, and that cash flow in your life is ultra important. That's the biggest controllable. For investors, you may be feeling the pinch because you have multiple properties, right? So just continue to be on property management about the, the rents that you're getting in and, and the, the vacancy rates and those sort of things to ensure that we've got minimal downside in, in cash flow on that front. And, and I think for, for mortgage holders in general, We've got to go bank shopping, don't we? I, I tell my clients all the time, it's like every six months, we've got to go and um, see what the rates are out there because there's so much competition and uh, and even the, the non-bank lenders uh, are putting their hands up with some pretty attractive stuff at the moment. Are you seeing that, Eliza? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, banks have gone through a period of real competition, uh, especially for that refi space. So I I think that's going to be a continued feature of 2023. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Uh, as I said, there'll be the press release in the show notes. And But thank you all for bringing your questions to us today. It means a lot. Uh, and thanks for your support and tuning in. And until next time, bye for now. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 